Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. All right, we have with us today Douglas Murray. He is an editor at The Spectator and contributor to Wall Street Journal, The Sunday Times, The New Criterion, and many other leading periodicals. His 2017 book, The Strange Death of Europe, Immigration, Identity, Islam, was one of those rare books that catches a historical crisis moment and becomes an anchor by which people caught up in it get their bearings. His latest book promises to do the same thing. It came out a few months ago and is titled The Madness of Crowds, Gender, Race, and Identity. And it's our topic today. Welcome, Douglas. It's very good to be with you. All right, well, jump right into the opening pages here. Uh, you have a lot of the vocabulary of madness when you when you summarize our situation in those opening pages. And I actually ended up pulling out a lot of the words, which include derangement, feverish, irrational, ferocity, rage, you even say demented or dementing. Now, you aren't just being rhetorical there, right? No, I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm literally d- describing uh, societal madness where we derange ourselves by, among other things, forbidding ourselves to think out loud, forbidding ourselves from being able to identify extraordinary contradictions that we're meant to believe simultaneously, and much more. Being made to believe, in short, to paraphrase Alice in Wonderland, which is as good a text as any to paraphrase (laughs) in this era, to believe a number of impossible things every day before breakfast. <laughs> you, you know, you point out very many of these things, and you do have that formulated. We're, we're asked to believe things that we know are not true, and mm. that just this genuinely produces a cognitive dissonance that we, we just can't live with without becoming neurotic. Neurotic and, and unpleasant and... Um, yeah, this isn't a happy and, neurosis. No, you know, no. And rude and and vindictive and spiteful and, and much more. Obviously, some people trace this almost solely to the online world, but that's not not accurate anymore. The the behaviour of the online world has spilt out onto the real world, and I give so many examples of this in the right. madness of crowds uh, as I take the I think main deranging issues of our day on one by one, and one reason for the madness has to do with the speed at which things have changed. You talk about how common assumptions about identity and sexuality that held for hundreds, if not thousands of years, they have changed drastically. And as I was reading your book, which I think brilliantly identifies and highlights and it makes vivid. I mean, you just say it. We, we have entered into a whole new condition just in the last few years. 
And again, the speed at which things have changed makes 2005 look like a whole nother historical era. And That's right. why, why has it happened? As you say, so fundamental things have been changed so quickly. Why did it happen so fast? You know, the um, there's a famous uh, saying about technological change. It's attributed to a number of people who I, I quote in the book. But it, it's it's a suggestion that all technical technological change consequences are overstated in the short term and underestimated in the long term. Mm. And I think we can now say this has been the case with social media, the internet, uh, and mass media, much more. That. Uh, at the very beginning, uh, we sort of overstated what its impact might be, and then we actually underestimated its long-term effects. The long-term effects are, are multiple. One of them is the, the disappearance of all knowledge and memory other than that which is on the internet and available on the internet and swiftly mm. discoverable on the internet so that everyone can pretend they know something they didn't know five minutes ago and they can cover up for the fact that they just googled mm. four and a half minutes ago and talking like an expert about something they hadn't heard of uh, there's there's things like that there's there's also just the fact that that as i put it in one of the interlude chapters the whole nature of human communication has changed in a way which we still haven't quite got on top of if we ever will you know there is no such thing now as private and public language exactly is... you you have a section called the disappearance of private language yes. which which contributes to the derangement yes i mean i would i would extend that analogy it's that it, you don't even have private publications as it were i mean there was a time when let's say readers of first things could buy first things knew roughly what they were getting knew that not to be pandering to my uh, <laughs> yeah, my yeah. hosts, but, you know, knew that you'd have a a, um, a a range of opinion, but knew roughly the place that the whole thing was coming from. Well, and that's the case, pretty much has been the case with every publication. Today, something different happens. The, the world as a whole can at any moment discover the thing that the readers of First Things or any other publication have been doing all this time. And they may may decide that they have absolutely no sympathy with it or indeed abhor it and want to crush it and stop it. Uh, uh, you mentioned uh, the outset that I happened to be at the uh, Spectator magazine in mm -hmm. London, uh, as well as the National Review and other publications. And, and at the Spectator in London, we have this occasionally when, you know, our readers know what our columnists uh, are likely to give them. And it's a terrific range of opinion. But every now and then, the world uh, as a whole, the Internet, it invites the whole world to discover one thing that somebody has said within there. And suddenly, you know, you're, you're writing for the entire world and the whole world can come down on you. And and, 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 and this, this is not something that people in, in situations like this, that people say, wow, this is wonderful. No. Can you believe this abomination that these people over here at this spectator are saying? Mm, that's it, it, right. It's never the positive, right? No, no, because because for some people, this has become effectively a lifestyle choice. Every day you join in a little stampede against somebody you hadn't heard of till yesterday nice. who has wrong thought about something you yourself may have not thought or held as an opinion until last year. I mean, the, the speed at which people are having to justify their opinions is is too fast for the speed which our legs can carry us at. And we are in this very dangerous moment where... Uh, where uh, people are finding it 
exceptionally difficult to sustain truths in public and as a result are being washed by the tide every time it comes in. You know, this, and, and we have to think about this and how to get through it. Th this leads to something that you say uh, about 25 pages. And when you're talking about the proliferation of news stories about being gay, such mm. as the New York Times devoting pages in the business section to a gay man in Japan coming out mm. in a business meeting. And the, the surface justification for this is roughly it's a positive thing. You know, it's, it's overcoming certain discrimination. But you actually find that there may be something, and your word is retributive. Yes, in that's these right. In these cases, how so? Uh, so, as you know, I take what I think of as being four of the most deranging subjects, which we're just incapable of talking or thinking about. Uh, I take them one by one. The first is gay. The second is women, that is relations between the sexes. The third is race. And the fourth is trans. Mm -hmm. And yes, in the gay chapter, I lay out, uh, among other things, this this suggestion that one of the things that's been happening in the last few years, particularly I, I suggest since I suggest all of this has metastasized since the financial crisis of 2008, for reasons I explain, it's sped up in the last five years or so. And you can prove this with Internet searches and algorithm searches. But then in, in the post 2016 era, the post Brexit vote, post Trump era, there has been a very strange weaponization of things like homosexuality by uh, uh, mainstream media and others who effectively have got to this stage of wanting to rub the public's nose in it. And yes, the example I give there, the New York Times business pages, it, it is very telling. And uh, if you turn to the business pages of the New York Times, you want to know what is happening in business. The New York Times wants to say, we're going to give you this for every course. I mean, the same day I mentioned that the opening pages of the arts section, the culture section of the New York Times, is about two men dancing in a ballet mm -hmm. uh, for New York City Ballet, where a woman's role has been turned into a man's role, so two men can dance together, which obviously is very important because previously everyone had thought of ballet as being an unbelievably heterosexual profession. But but the, 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 the thing that's happening here appears to be something like saying to the general public, we are going to give you more of the gay stuff than you ever asked for. We're going to treat you as if you're all bigots uh, and uh, um, homophobes. We're going to treat you uh, as if all men are basically um, horrible and think horrible things about women. We're going to treat all white people as if they're racists. And we're going to treat you all as if you need serious education and re-education about trans. And that is, it is a retributive thing. I chart how this has all happened in the last few years. And I think it's inseparable from the culture war that is being fought underneath our politics daily. You have a related phenomenon that is fascinating in the book. What happens when you go into Google and you are looking at images, Google images, and you type the words straight white couple? Yes, this is right. <laughs> Your examples are stunning. This is a demonstration of something which I, I've just described, but in the tech world. Uh, I spent some time in Silicon Valley in recent years to try to work out some of the stuff that was going on. And it became clear to me that what I've just described to you, you and your listeners about, as it were, what we're being force fed by some of the media 
is the same thing that the internet companies at much faster speed are force feeding it to us. So if you take Google image search algorithms, go, go and just do you. Everyone can do it themselves, as you say. Uh, search for gay couple. You'll only get happy gay couples. Search for straight couples. You'll mainly get gay couples. Huh. Um, you search for uh, black couples or black families you will get lots of happy black couples and black families. Search for white couples and you'll get mainly interracial couples and black couples. Uh, white families, it's interracial families and black families. Uh, and on and on. And what I think is just clearly going on here is that the search engines have been skewed by human agency in such a way as a, to effectively say, we think you're bigots if you'd be searching for the following terms, so we're going to enrage you, derange you, or re-educate you to make you think and see something other than the thing you we think you might be thinking or seeing or mm -hmm. seeking to see. It's an incredibly sinister thing. You know, uh, there's, there's another, just one other example I'd give, which is, Try doing Western art or Western people's art yep. into Google image searches. You would imagine you'd get some of the great works of the Renaissance, some of the great works of uh, the French Impressionists or, or Michelangelo or any number of, of great works of art. And you'll see that actually you don't get very much of that. It's all identity politics stuff. It's indigenous people stuff and, and much more. This is a monumental a deeply sinister, not just re-education program, but a rewriting of the history of the West in right. particular. Right. Now, the tech world used to be, and proudly, wide open libertarian. That it was this kind of manipulation simply, well, maybe it did happen and we weren't aware of it, but... How did Silicon Valley end up so doggone vigilantly intersectionalist? Well, I mean, it's uh, lots of possible explanations for that. But I mean, I think it's simply I mean, I, I travel an awful lot. I travel all the time. I'm roughly in a different country every week and have been for years. Uh, I can safely say that Silicon Valley is the most social justice warrior obsessed set of square miles in the world. <laughs> It's a very unusual place with very unusual ideas about society and progress. And and what always happens in a, 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 a situation where there's effectively only one thing you're meant to think and where there's an awful lot of power and money is that that set of thoughts uh, inveigles itself into everything it tries to touch. Uh, but in a way, I'm. I think what's most interesting are what the deep fundamentals that are going on underneath this that are causing it are. And I, I explain at the very outset of the madness of crowds. I pick up on a theme I wrote about in the Strange Death of Europe, which is what happens in the West when your when your morality, uh, the, the 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 moral scheme and the ethical scheme you'd relied on for millennia effectively starts to erode or disappear away you you remain for a time in its afterglow but everything else can change exceptionally swiftly and what i'm mm. suggesting is happening underneath all of this a massive movement that needs to be identified more clearly is that there has been a fun, fundamental shift 
in our metaphysical system in the West in the last couple of decades. It's a shift away from the principles which many of us were brought up with, the the beliefs, uh, the understanding of history that many of us were brought up with, and a total shift which, uh, um, in this case, what I'm writing about in Matters of Crowds, bases its morality primarily and indeed its metaphysical system on leaning on minority rights issues and making them the weaponized battleground for social justice fights, that this in itself gives meaning to life, that battling for social issues is the point. It's what gives life meaning. Now, I urge people, as you know, particularly young people, I'm very lucky to have a lot of young readers, um, to urge young people in particular not to spend their lives doing this, but to do things more meaningful. Because uh, this is a retributive form of existence, which is going to be deeply unrewarding in every imaginable way if people pursue this as their lifestyle. You know, I, I, I think that it's called a culture war as a mistake. It's, it's a religious war. If we're talking about these metaphysical foundations, then a lot of the culture is, is really a manifestation of these deeper ideas about the cosmos about human human nature, if they believe in nature, and that we, we really are, are in, a, uh, in a battle that's not going to be resolved by getting the right person in office and getting the no. wrong person out of office. Politics, normal politics, aren't, aren't going to fix this problem, but a lot, you're right, a lot of people don't really notice it or they, they just kind of say, oh, well, that's just the extreme stuff going on. But one of the effective parts of the book is when you offer first-person encounters where these deeper deeper shifts are in play. And I'll, I'll refer to one where you attended a meeting about promoting women in business. Mm. And after hearing so much about the power of rich white males, the exploitation of women in the – and the powerless of women in the workplace, you actually rose <laughs> – you said something that that no one else was saying. You talked about the power that attractive young females have yes. in in this world. How did that go down, Douglas? Oh, I mean, I'm used to saying unpopular things, but <laughs> this 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 was this was definitely my top ten. Um, you know, I think one of the things that needs to be said about this, and which I'm I, I say in the women chapter, as you mentioned, is that we have. We have started to imbibe in our societies, particularly in countries like America, particularly in America, but also in Britain, where, where I'm from. Uh, we've imbibed this idea in recent years that effectively women are sort of um, victims, powerless victims, uh, and the uh, victims in particular of the so-called patriarchy, which is one of these terms which is just whooshed through from, you know, the the confines of Berkeley and a few other strange uh, mm-hmm. um, places all the way through into the mainstream in no time at all. And uh, I think that the whole idea of patriarchy, like so-called white privilege, and a whole set of other incredibly bigoted terms need to be uh, pulled apart and exposed. Um, and yes, this whole thing of the, the, the uh, uh, that you mentioned about this conference is that is that what I saw there is something I've been thinking about for a very long time, which is 
why, among other things, are we bringing young women and girls up with this idea that, you know, the world is this patriarchal nightmare where men will seek to suppress them throughout their lives? It, it, there's two things to say really about this. The first is that it's a product of, and I, I, I trace this in a small bit in the book I devote to some of the fundamentals, including the foundational myths of Foucault and others, which mm-hmm. is that this interpretation of life through solely through the lens of power. Um, it's an amazingly mistaken and misguided way to understand life. But it is a way that a large number of people from now more than one generation has been persuaded to think of human existence, primarily that our relations are to do with power dynamics. But I say, okay, if you are obsessed with power, as opposed to, say, love, charity or forgiveness or much more, um, uh, uh, wh- why do we talk about this if there's only one form of power? Mm-hmm. Can nobody think of any situations in their own lives where a woman has wielded power over a man? We all can. But this is, this is one of these things that's like forgotten knowledge now. It's, it's, it's like the idea that racism is solely something that white people are capable of. You have to be so fantastically ignorant and indeed racist to make such a claim. But it's one of the it's one of the foundational assumption claims which people, you know, come out of American colleges after their parents have remortgaged the houses to send them away and make their kids stupider. They return from college, you know, <laughs> believing this sort of stuff and believing it's a useful lens through which to view the world. And 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 as I show in the book, all of these things are among other among other things are um contradictory on their own terms, they they contradict themselves uh, for for beautiful and very clear reasons, which I I'm delighted to expose. You, you've got two very good metaphors for the the, the, the situation. One is the tripwire. What is the yep. tripwire? The, the the tripwire is something I became conscious of. I I happen to do quite a lot of media, um, and I became aware in the period that I'm, I, I describe in which all of this has sped up, I became aware that effectively all public discussion had changed. It had become, and I'm thinking here of television, radio, uh, NPR, you know, uh, and so on, is that a politician and indeed even a writer, thinker like myself, gets invited on, and you're not really invited on to sort of help solve a puzzle or a problem or indeed even to contribute knowledge of any kind, you're invited on in the hope that you will say something or fail to say something, which means that one of your fellow panellists can accuse you of one of the great crimes of the day, that is homophobia, sexism, racism or transphobia. And it means that it's one of the primary reasons why nobody actually says anything of consequence on the television or radio, because the game is to survive. The game is not (laughs) the game is not to say anything. It's to get through the minutes or hours that you're on. And and so that's why I say that. And and, and the fascinating thing is, it's taken a while to realize exactly where these trip wires are. Um, And there were some people early on who sort of 
trod across them or nicked them. And we all learned from that. You know, people like the Nobel Prize winning scientist Tim Hunt, who made a, a, you know, a joke about women at a conference in uh, South Korea. By the play, time his plane had landed back in London, he'd been fired from every job he had. <laughs> And and, you know, now all men know we should never talk about women. Mm -hmm. You know, now all straight people know you never talk about LGBT issues. Now, absolutely everybody knows you never get into tea uh, and, and, and so on. And and so, yes, this is. It's 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 a great tragedy of our day, because at the time when we we've never been able to communicate wider and better, we've never been able to draw on a wider array of talent around the world to think about and hover over and try to address major issues. We've actually at that moment of optimal potential communication and problem solving, we have neutered ourselves from being able to focus on some of the things that we ought to be able to focus on. The other metaphor, the scrambling device, or the unscrambling device, what, what is that? Yes, this is that, that effectively all of, these, uh, all of these parts I write about uh, um, ha seem to, at this stage, have some kind of scrambling device in front of them. Uh, that you can't... So let me give you an example from the LGBT one. Um, uh, it came up just yesterday at Slate magazine where uh, a woman wrote in saying, I'm heterosexual by inclination, but I hate heterosexuals uh, politically. <laughs> so I don't know what to do. And indeed, it's not clear what she should do other than I don't know, go to a nunnery or something. <laughs> but but anyhow, I mean, uh, she decided to, to write about this. And one of the things she said was because I'm and this is where she wouldn't actually be any use in a nunnery. But she said, she said, I because I want someone with queer politics. Well, well, hang on a minute. You see, this is one of the this is one of the scrambling things. Uh, it, it, being gay, uh, maybe lots of things. I, I explain in the gay chapter how we really don't really still know very much about what it is. But but uh, it's not a it's not a political program. You know, it's not it's not something which is a sort of agenda. It's the same thing with uh, every single one of these other issues. I describe uh, how on major issues like the, I don't know, you know, look at the Rachel Dolezal case a few years ago, this white mm -hmm. woman pretended to be black. And when uh, a major uh, figure, uh, Michael Eric Dyson, is interviewed on CNN about this, he says, actually, I don't mind if she's, you know, putting the bronzer on and frizzing up her hair in a rather stereotypical manner. I don't mind that because he says she's taken on our, that is the black community, in his views, our concerns. And he says, I think that most black Americans feel they've got more in common with Rachel Dolezal than they do say with Clarence Thomas. And well, in that case, you're saying that being black isn't just a, a skin pigmentation issue. It's not just about a color of your skin. It's a sort of whole, what, an agenda of some kind, uh, uh, some kind of um, political project so that so that the white woman can be black, but the black conservative can't be black. He's white. Mm -hmm. um, uh, these are scrambling devices which are are maddening our era because w we all w we all know, I think, instinctively that this thing can't be true. But we're not allowing ourselves the de-scrambling devices necessary 
to try to just think our way through what are complex issues. Like the relations between the sexes is a complex issue, but it's not as complex as we are choosing now to make it. It's not impossible. I mean, after all, we're all here. So it's worked for an awfully long time. Right. Last example, as, as we as we close things out, in your discussion of Ta-Nehisi Coates mm. and Remy Edo Lodge, two black writers who thrive on an accusatory, unforgiving attitude toward whites, you speak of their success in another powerful phrase. You call it the normalization of vengefulness. Yes. Broadly, uh, Douglas, do you see that continuing? How long, maybe this is the bigger question, how long can the madness go on before things really start exploding? It may be able to burn itself out. It may be assisted to burn itself out. And I, I have uh, uh, quite a bit of optimism that this, this will actually be the case. There are some good signs already. Both the writers you saw, I mean, both, uh, both are talented writers, uh, mm-hmm. uh, um, somewhat, I think, overpraised, but, uh, but talented writers. And I'm just struck by the fact that, for instance, Rennie Edo Lodge, uh, who wrote this book called Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, uh, uh, mentions that, you know, there was a a murder of a black man. uh, There weren't very many black people in Britain in the 1920s. But in about 1920, there was a murder of a black man in the docks in Liverpool. And uh, she says, I wasn't taught about this at school when I was growing up in the 1990s. You know, this is like this is hidden information. This was kept from us. Mm. And, you know, you can take that view or you can realize that basically, I mean, British school children, a little bit better than American school children, I think, in their education, but not much, don't know much beyond the fact that the world went to war in 1939 till about 1945, and that it may have had a major war before, and uh, and then there was slavery, and before that, dinosaurs, about 50 years earlier. And, <laughs> I mean, nobody knows anything. The idea that, the, the idea that uh, you know, a racist murder in Liverpool in the early 20th century isn't the focal point of the education system. It's a very strange way to view it. But but all of this is, is, is another thing facilitated by, apart from anything else, the internet, which is the ability to go back to the past and rake over the past with this new type of attitude, this I'm going to find like the Whig interpretation of history in a way, it's a sort of version of that, but an eventual version, is to say, I'm going to find all the things that happened that were negative historically to people who look like me. And I'm going to then use that against people who look like the sort of people who did that. And this, this is a nightmare. I don't need to tell you. I mean, on the racial issue in particular is a nightmare. It isn't clear to me by any any stretch of the imagination that most men are going to want to continue being told that they are effectively rapists in waiting. It's not clear to me that majorities of the public are willing to continue to be told that they're bigoted. And it's not clear (laughs) to me that white people are going to be forever just happy to be treated as if they're the cause of all the world's problems and everyone else is some kind of blissful Edenic, you know, um, hero. And, you know, I think that the whole of this this project that I try to unravel in this book and expose is is going to fall apart for lots of reasons. But one of them is the most crucial one of all. It 
it does something which we had tried not to do in recent, well, centuries, I would say, but particularly in recent decades. It it actually lumps people together solely by characteristics which they have no say in. It does exactly the opposite, apart from anything else, of what Martin Luther King invited us to do a half a century ago. It says we will not judge you by the content of your character. We're not interested in the content of your character. We can guess the content of your character based on your sexuality, sex, uh, uh, gender, uh, sexual orientation uh, and race. We can guess it. So we know about you before you've even spoken. This is lethal it's in nobody's interest in the long term and i have every hope that if enough people with sense from across the political spectrum come together it's something we can see off in the coming years and i want to assure listeners that you don't end just with the 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 litany of complaint you 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 have you have Lots of affirmative talk about yes. ways ways out, ways beyond this. And I'll, I'll just mention one thing that you cite from Hannah Arendt on the necessity mm. of forgiveness. Yes. Is this is is this a primary step? Last point: the primary step in in getting out of this vindictive, retributive religion. Yes, I am. Um, a lot of people, particularly right talk about the younger generation, the upcoming generation as sort of snowflakes and things like this. And I don't do that because I think it's, I think it's fundamentally unfair because it, it fails to take into account the complexity of the world that young people are going into. This world where public and private language have been eroded, where any mistake, a misstep you make could be with you forever. Every sentence you utter could be the thing that destroys your life. Mm-hmm. Hannah Arendt says in the 50s that, you know, the problem for us human beings was always that, the problem of action in the world. We never knew the consequence of words. We never knew the consequence of our actions. And there's no going Everything, back. And, and 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 there's no going back. Everything is undoable. It's sorry, unundoable. And this has always been the problem for human beings. Now, the, the only way out of this we've ever d- discerned as a species is, as Arendt says, something like the, forgi- the forgiveness mechanism. And obviously, in the Christian tradition, uh, the forgiveness uh, mechanism is is exceedingly important. It's absolutely central. Um, the concept of redemption and and much more. Now we live in this. We are asking young people to enter a society where acting in the world has never been more perilous, and there is no way back. We. I, I, one of the things I beg people to think about is how what forgiveness would look like in the world that we're inviting people to enter into what what does it mean what would it be like to be able to undo a mistake in the in the era we're in there are ways and i suggest a few i suggest a few ways that we could all try to get out of this Currently, what happens is we forgive those with whom we're broadly in agreement and we try to destroy those to whom we already feel some kind of opposition. But um, we need to think about this because it's not possible to continue to live peaceably in a culture in which nobody dares act for fear of the consequence of action and everybody is destroyed the only time that they first make a misstep. 
and this is not this is not a world that we can invite people to grow up in happily and so it's just one of the many things because i say i'm i'm very lucky in having a lot of young readers and listeners and i i just think they are among the, uh, they are the luckiest uh, generation in human history they can find out anything at the click of a button and so much good could be done and there's so much that can be discovered and found out and and uh, i just i just wish that we would help them to step into a world which was fairer in its understanding of what we human beings are and fairer in its view of the fact that we all misstep and that we need some way back and that a society that doesn't think of that itself probably has no way back. The book is The Madness of Crowds, Gender, Race, and Identity, published by Bloomsbury. Thank you, Douglas Murray. It's a great pleasure. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.